I'm Dr. Jack West from City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org under the news heading. I'm happy to be joined now by Dr. Joan Schiller, who is a medical oncologist with a clear focus on thoracic thoracic oncology. She's on the faculty at the University of Virginia and uh, has previously served as the chair of the Lung Cancer Committee for the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group, or ECOG. And uh, she has really had a profound influence on the uh, shape of lung cancer practice over the last couple of decades. So thanks for joining. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thank you for having me. So the field of lung cancer has changed incredibly over the last couple of decades. 20 years ago, it was widely debated whether it was even worth treating advanced non-small cell. When I was a fellow, that was the kind of thing that was being debated in journal articles. Uh, This was when the treatment improved survival by one to two months, and this was with potentially challenging chemo regimens with cisplatin, and some thought that the treatment was worse than the disease. You led the Lung Cancer Committee for ECOG at that time, and was there a level of hope that it would get better, or was it difficult to rally the troops about lung cancer at that time? I think that those of us who are working in the field knew how important it was to help lung cancer patients. These patients are so important, so needy, so grateful for anything that you could do for them whatsoever. I mean, they're real human beings. They're real decent human beings. They're not bad people. They haven't done anything wrong. And so, I think for those of us working in the field at the time, the idea was just keep on plugging and something's going to come along. There were a lot of, uh, lots of research going on in cancer in general. Um, and the thought was at some point it's going to trickle down to lung cancer as well. One pivotal trial that you presented and published, ECOG 1594, uh, loomed large as, poten- as potentially identifying a best new doublet among various newer promising platinum-based combinations, but that trial ended up showing no clinically meaningful differences among the doublets and a median overall survival of just seven to eight months in all the arms. How did you view the results at the time? And with the benefit of hindsight, we can take pride at how far we moved from that march, mar, uh, from that benchmark, but I imagine at the time it was far different from what you'd hoped to see. It was, but on the other hand, all four arms did better than what we had seen a decade before that. Mm -hmm. So even though we were unable to identify one clear winner, at least these new drugs were doing better than they had before. Mm -hmm. We had made a tiny step forward, albeit tiny. At that time, uh, a general oncologist could give their preferred platinum doublet, uh, which was typically carbopaclitaxel, the control arm of that study, to just about every patient with lung cancer, probably for close to a decade or so, without opening a journal in that time, and still be following the standard of care. We've come very far from that. Uh, What do you see as the biggest quantum leaps over the past 10 to 15 years in our field? I think the um, twofold, one of which is the fact that um, we have identified, I use the royal we, we have identified um, driver mutations 
and have identified drugs which target them. And for those individuals with these target mutations, it has made all the difference in the world, for sure. And the other um, big development, I think, is immunotherapy. Now, when I was first getting into the field, we were looking at immunotherapy then as well. We were looking at interleukin-2 and interferon, and boy, those did nothing for lung cancer, <laughs> to say the least. Um, so I am pleased that uh, despite our nihilism at the time, after those studies all turned out to be negative, that you know scientists have continued to explore this and have now found remarkable drugs which can have remarkable outcomes. Um, those two, I think, have just really changed the field immensely. When you think about it, at this point, we're reaching a, a, a period where the majority of patients with advanced non-small cell have a realistic expectation of living one or more years. Uh, I mean, it's, it's great that we're in an era where even if we're not curing patients, mm -hmm. yes. we can rightfully be talking to patients honestly about living years instead of a, a treatment that improves survival by weeks to months right. at a time. Yeah. I think, though, that we have to be uh, keep in mind that um, we still are not curing patients. And for a person, a patient, to hear we're talking about a year is still devastating, still devastating. It's better than the six months we may have mentioned before. Um, so we made a step, you know, you make enough little baby steps and you finally get to a big step and I think that's where we are, but we are far from the finish line. With all the advances that we've seen in the last decade or more, do you sense that it's harder for general oncologists to keep up with this? And is that leading to less favorable outcomes for the lung cancer community than we could hope to see otherwise? I don't see how general oncologists could possibly remain up to date with everything that's going on, not just in lung cancer, but in every other field as well. I mean, these new advances are happening for every solid tumor pretty much and for pretty much every hematological malignancy. I do not see how they can do it. So, um, yeah, I mean, if I or one of my family members had cancer, I would want to see an expert in that cancer, not just an expert in oncology in general, for yeah. sure. You have uh, worked in a few different geographic areas. You established your career at the University of Wisconsin, then moved to University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas, and several years ago moved to uh, private setting outside of Washington, D.C. Do you see clear differences in practice based on the region or differences that are striking between tertiary care and, and, uh, and a, a, a community-based practice? Um, I, I have a lot of respect for the community-based general oncologists. Like I said, I don't see how they can possibly keep up. On the other hand, I don't think they necessarily try to keep up, and I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, it's just there's way too much out there. Yeah. So in the community setting, they are just racing all the time, whereas academics is racing more and more, but there is more of a chance for a pause and to read and to remain an expert in your field. You started what is now Free to Breathe, a very successful nonprofit facilitating lung cancer research, support, and advocacy. It originally started out as Women Against Lung Cancer. How important has it been to help reduce the barriers for women in thoracic oncology? 
And do you think there continue to be significant headwinds for women who focus in lung cancer or oncology in general? So the, when we started Women Against Lung Cancer, it was for two reasons, um, one of which was way back at that time, it was amazing how many individuals did not realize that lung cancer was a woman's disease and that more women were dying of lung cancer than of breast cancer. Nobody knew it. And the second reason, though, was to try to encourage women, scientists, physicians, oncologists, to get into the field of lung cancer because nobody was going into it either. And I'd like to think that we made a significant step in that regard on both of those fields. Nobody was talking about women having lung cancer at the time. And now I think it's much more known out in the community, at any rate, that women can get lung cancer as well. Um, so I think in that regard, we have made strides. We have many more strides to go. Um, we still have not spent a lot of time or effort on identifying how lung cancer um, affects women differently than it does men. And I, I think it really truly does. I mean, women are women non-smokers are more likely to get lung cancer than men non-smokers. They're more likely to have driver mutations than men are. Not entirely, but more so. Um, for the first time, the American Cancer Society last year published a paper that um, agreed with what I think we all clinically had been observing, and that is, is that we're seeing more younger women non-smokers come down with lung cancer. And it was the first time they ever recognized that. Mm -hmm. Would you say that uh, when I look at a meeting like we're at now, which is uh, the IASLC targeted therapies in lung cancer, there are a lot of women presenting and in the field, and I would say it's very different from what it was 10 to 15 it, years absolutely. ago. Absolutely, it's really great to see all that. Um, boy, I remember when I first got into the area and went to my first ECOG meetings, there were like two or three women in the thoracic committee, and like I think two of them, one was a statistician and one was a ECOG you know, a staff member and me. Um, so times have really changed, so that's really, really great. Free to Breathe continues to do great work and it channels the energies of patients and caregivers. We now increasingly see patients and caregivers as stakeholders and participants in tracks at ASCO and IESLC meetings, other oncology meetings. Can you offer some thoughts on the role of patients and online patient groups and how that's evolved in the last 10 years? So first of all, um, Free to Breathe has merged with a nonprofit organization in New York City called Lung Cancer Research Foundation, LCRF. The reason we did that was to have a bigger impact by combining two organizations, one based almost entirely in New York, and we had more of a national footprint. The idea was bigger was better, frankly, when it came to both raising money for research but yes, also getting patients involved. And there are many, many patients who are angry they got lung cancer, who are angry there's not enough respect paid for them, are angry that there hasn't been as much research, and they are out there mobilizing. And, and I think we are seeing some results from that, for sure. In past years, the role of a committee chair for a cooperative group was like a Supreme Court justice. Mm -hmm. uh, you could occupy it for decades. Uh, you chose to step down kind of mid-career and have really done a lot to cultivate the career opportunities for junior colleagues. You've also helped shepherd junior colleagues at your own institutions over the years 
Can you talk about how you view and prioritize mentoring colleagues both in your institution and through institutional settings like like the cooperative groups? And as with the former Women Against Lung Cancer, it's key. Um, we have to keep on bringing up these junior colleagues if we are going to succeed in combating this disease or any type of cancer. One of my big worries about um, the field of cancer is I think there is a shrinking population of clinical investigators. Um, as the economics of medicine continue to evolve, um, clinicians are being asked to see more and more patients with less and less time for research. Um, and I'm worried that in 10 years, they're gonna be an ex extinct species. And I think the only way to prevent that is by really strong mentorship. Mm. No, that's great. What do you see as the biggest challenge facing thoracic oncology now? Uh, is it, you know, is it is it related to conducting research? Is it keeping up with the field? Stigma. I, stigma and guilt associated with lung cancer are still very very real things. Mm -hmm. um, Has that gotten better? Do you think? Slightly. So we actually have, um, we, in, 19, in 1912, in uh, 2012, we conducted a survey, an online survey, comparing people's attitudes to breast versus lung cancer. And boy, did they skew toward the lung cancer's horrible side. Um, we just finished uh, repeating that last year. It's not published yet. We'll probably submit it to World Lung. And it, it is still skewed. But it's not as bad, believe it or not. It actually has started to move a little bit. Education has helped. I think so, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining oh, us. Oh, you're quite so wonderful. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more lung cancer considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues. This is Dr. Jack West. Until next time.